40 and verse 7. Isaiah 40, probably one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. I love what it says about the Lord in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 7. Isaiah 40 and verse 7. Go ahead and stand with me as you turn there, as you get there. We'll read just two verses, so if you would, just read those verses aloud with me. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 7 and verse 8. Uh, Together, let's read those together. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Psalms 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you, and again, I thank you for the privilege of being here tonight. Lord, be with me as I lift up you and lift up your words. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Boy, I talk about a tremendous passage of Scripture. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. Uh, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth it upon it. Surely the people is grass. God gives us the comparison. Times change, don't they? People come and go, and uh, through various times in history, people have mocked the Scripture and denied that it would be in existence, and yet they've come and gone, and God's Word still stands. And Satan's been after the Word of God since the Garden of, Garden of Eden there when he brought doubt to the Word of God before Eve, and yet the Word of God still stands. And the Lord reminds us of that. He he talks about people being as grass and how at times come and go, leaders come and go, people come and go, but God's word will stand forever. Isaiah, in those verses, Psalms 119 and verse 89, it says, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's just a settled word. And, And I'm thankful for some settled scripture. Boy, life changes a lot, doesn't it? It comes and it goes and it changes. And if there's something I've been thankful for, I'm 43, not that, not as, not as old as some, not as young as some, but I am thankful for the things as things change that, that God's word has not changed. I, I am thankful for the timeless nature of God's word. You know, it's, it's not a book of, a, it's not a fad, is it? It's not a fad or a trend. It is something that is timeless. It is the very word of God. It is a settled word. It's important that we view it that way because Romans 10 and verse 17 says this. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. You know, if you cannot trust the word, we don't we don't have anything, do we? Uh, We should. We might as well go home tonight if you cannot trust the scripture. Uh, because that is the the basis of our faith. Uh, The Bible says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. Uh, the, Bible, the Bible reminds us of that. and uh, It's impossible to please Him. Faith is the basis of our salvation. But what we know about God in specific comes from His Word. And if God's Word is not reliable and, and cannot be trusted, then we really don't have anything. I, I think sometimes, uh, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we, over, we overthink it. And I think this, you know, if, if you have to pick and choose which parts of the Bible are God's Word and which parts are not God's Word, then you really don't have any Bible. Because there's no sure thing that John 3.16 is true. If Genesis 1 is not true and you don't believe in the way that God created the world, then you're going to have a hard time with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You can't pick and choose with God. And he's given us a settled word. And it reminds us that, that life changes, but God's word doesn't change. And the reason it doesn't change is because it is God's word. It's directly tied to its author. And the Bible says this about God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
that he doesn't change and he's given us an unchanging word. And, and I want to look at just some things concerning this. And the first thing I want you to notice about a, the settled on the scriptures is this settled on the canon of God's word. Not something we think about often, but, but I think that it's important when it comes to the word of God. A canon is just simply this. It is a measuring rod, a rule or a standard. In reference to the Bible, the canon means those books measured and found satisfactory as a part of the inspired word of God. Canonicity is a book's right to be included in the biblical canon. I'm going to take you to our Bible class for the first few part. I think uh, Pastor Adam and Brother Jeremiah have been teaching through some of this in Bible class, and this is coming from that. But canonicity of the Scripture, when we speak of the canon of God's Word or the canonicity of Scripture, we're talking about the, the reason those books are there. Recently, someone asked me about the book of Enoch, and I don't know if anybody ever heard of that book, the book of Enoch. And uh, then, of course, there's the questions about the Apocrypha and, and all of that nature. And, and someone, you have to ask yourself, why do we have these 66 books in our Bible? Why are they there? Well, they're given to us by God. We know that. God used over 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years to give us the 66 books of the Bible. But how did we come to this understanding that these are the Word of God? First of all, it was determined by God. It was determined by God. The Old Testament was approved by Christ. I want to look at this verse here on your outline if you have it. It says in Luke 24, 44, it says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. This is Jesus. That all the things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. It, it seems to be a, uh, you know, not an important verse, but it is an important verse. Here the Lord Jesus Christ says this, those, those things which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. You know, if you were to go to your Bible tonight, you would find your, your Old Testament in a different order than what they had in the time of Christ. As a matter of fact, Josephus in his works gives us that order, and that's what you'll see there in a minute. They had it in the order of the books or, or these sections. They had it in the book of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets. We assign our, we divide our Bible this way. We divide it by the law. That's Moses or the book of Genesis through Deuteronomy. We do it, books of history. That's Joshua through Esther. Books of poetry. That's Job through Song of Solomon. The major prophets. That's Isaiah through Daniel. And the minor prophets. That's Hosea through Malachi. If, if you were to say, what are those divisions of the scripture? That's what we would tell you. And that's why if you flip to the front of your Bible, you would find them listed in that order. It's the order of the, the modern way that we order the scriptures. But if you were to go back to the time of Christ, their sections of the scripture, the way they would refer to it as the Moses, the books of, books of the book of the law, the book of Psalms and the book of prophets. And uh, that's what that order is, that that is what you have on your scripture. So as the Lord was saying these words here in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. It would be like someone standing and saying, these things are true. That which is in the law, if we were to say that, that which is in the law, that which is in the history of the scripture, the poetry of scripture, the major prophets of the scripture and the minor prophets, you would say, I just summed up the entirety of the Old Testament. What the Lord was doing, he was summing up the Lord Jesus Christ on his time on this earth, the Old Testament canon of the scripture, if you will. He said, this is your Bible. This is the Old Testament. And he's, he's referring to those things. And, and so the Jews of their day, as they heard Jesus speaking these words, they knew what he was speaking about, their Old Testament books. 
They're Old Testament. Now, the, the Apocrypha was written sometime between the old conclusion of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you notice the Lord didn't say, and the Apocrypha. The book of Enoch, an old one. He didn't say, and the book of Enoch. What he said here was these things, Moses, or the, the books of the law, the books of, uh, the books of Psalms, and the book of prophets. He was referring to the scripture. Jesus himself confirmed and referred to what we know as the Old Testament in his time on earth. The Old Testament canon was approved by Christ. In Luke eleven fifty one, Jesus would say these words, From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Once again, the Old Testament books were not in the same order that we have it in today. As a matter of fact, the first book in the, in the time of Christ was obviously the book of Genesis. And the last one was, the, was Second Chronicles. They had it in a separate order. So when the book, when theirs were outlined there in the time of Christ, Genesis was the first book, Second Chronicles was the last verse. We finished with the book of Malachi because of our modern divisions, the way we've division, divided it. But in the time of Christ, the first one was Genesis and the last one was Second Chronicles. The blood of Abel was found in Genesis chapter 4 and uh, verse 8. And the blood of Zacharias was in Second Chronicles 24, 21 the last book of their Old Testament when they had it in that day. So here the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, from the blood of Abel, the beginning of the Old Testament, to the, to the blood of Zacharias, the end of the Old Testament, and he refers to the Scripture as a whole. You say, how do we know which books the Lord is referring to in the Old Testament? Well, well Jesus spoke of them. He spoke of the books in the, in the, book of Mo, the books of Moses. He spoke of the Psalms and he, and he spoke of the, the prophets. And, and he said from the blood of Abel, even under the blood of Zacharias. And, and he confirmed those things. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, the Lord on at least 35 different times referenced the Old Testament scriptures in the Gospels at least 35 times. The Lord Jesus Christ himself on earth would speak of those Old Testament books. And so we begin to get this glimpse of the canon of Scripture because what Christ spoke of himself, the Old Testament canon was approved by him. The New Testament was pre-authenticated by Christ. He, he pre-authenticated it. You'll, see the, you'll note there in John 16, verse 13, it says, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come. This is the Lord's conversation with his disciples there in that upper room just before his crucifixion. He says, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, has come. He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He would look at his apostles, his disciples, and say, you're going to speak of these things. In John 14, 26, it says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. The apostles recognized this. In John 20, 30 through 31, John would say this, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. 1 Corinthians two thirteen. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual what the Holy Ghost teaches. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter being one of those. And so in, in the Lord's lifetime on this earth, in his teachings, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that he refers over and over again 
to the books of the Old Testament. Why do we lean on those books of the Old Testament? Number one, God determined that they were his word. He would reference them. He would speak of them. And, and he would highlight things from them. And, and then he would even begin to give that pre-authentication to the, the books that we would have in our New Testament today by giving us some insight into who those would be who would write them. And he began to speak of that so that I could come to this place of saying, how do I know what is the word of God? And I could ask myself the simple question, who it was who wrote them. The Lord would prove these things, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10, it says, Charity never faileth. That's the, the chapter on love. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then, with, then that which is in part shall be done away. What is he talking about when he says that which is perfect which is come? Well, the context of it, he's just talked about some sign gifts that were going to disappear. The ones of prophecy, the ones of knowledge. Now, some people have tried to read in there, that's the second coming of Christ. The problem is there's nothing in that chapter about the second coming of Christ. There's nothing there. It's reading into the scripture something that you don't really see in there, which is one of the rules of, that you're breaking one of the rules of Bible study, but it's not there. But what is there is the gifts of prophecy and knowledge, and those were the gifts by which God gave us the New Testament. Peter would, would write, as the Lord would give through the gift of knowledge, would give him those scriptures, and he would let that be seen in those gifts that we would see cease as the apostles came off the scene. Those gifts that were given to confirm, these are my people, giving my word and the establishment of his church, and gave their word. But as the disciples passed off the scene, uh, it was over. And in Second Peter, and, or I'm sorry, and then in, in James 1.25, it says, But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, once again, that word complete, perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. There was something perfect to come, something complete to come, and there is something complete that has arrived, and it is the Word of God. He would speak of that so that I could know that there is a completed Word of God. Why do, why do we say, there's no, God doesn't have extra words of knowledge. Be careful when somebody says, I have a word from God to you. God's already finished His Word. He's done. He's finished with it. And he's given it to us in the revealed word of God. And he has completed, if you will, that canon of scripture. And now we're not talking about just a word of encouragement or, or something of that nature. But some folks are in the business now of, of standing up and saying, I've got an extra word from God. You can find people on television, preachers. You can find certain denominations doing the extra words of God. Prophets and apostles still in existence giving extra words of knowledge. And those things are done. Because God has given to us the completed word of God. And, uh, and he highlights the, those things. So we see the canon of scripture. It's, it's determined by God. And the Lord Jesus Christ would, would uh, confirm the Old Testament. And he would pre-authenticate the New Testament. And then we see this recognized by men. How this was recognized. How did the early church leaders recognize God's word? There are five questions that were posed by the early church leaders as an aid to accurately recognizing God's word. And first of all, is it authoritative? Is it authoritative? Does a particular book have the authority of God behind it? Over 3,000 times in the Old Testament, you will find some words along the lines of, Thus saith the Lord. So as they looked to Scripture, they were looking to the Scripture. Is it authoritative? First of all, does it claim to be the word of God? 
Is it authoritative in its nature? Does it claim to be the Word of God? There's old books, but just because something's old doesn't mean that it was the Word of God. Matter of fact, Paul would reference letters he had already written that we don't see recorded in the Scriptures. Why were they not, if you were, why were they not considered in the canon of Scripture? Because he knew it wasn't the Word of God. Those were the Word of God, and he would recognize, is it authoritative? Is it prophetic? The next question they asked was whether or not a book was written by a man of God, a prophet, or one of apostolic authority. Is who wrote it? Who wrote it? In other words, they would say, is it authoritative, as, as Paul would write or as John would write? This is who wrote it. This is the claims of it. And this is the one who wrote it. Look, if you or I showed up on the scene at that time and said, I'm writing the word of God, you might find yourself being questioned. <laughs> you might find yourself being questioned. So they asked the question, is it authoritative? Uh, is, it, uh, is it prophetic? Is it authentic? This question attempts to determine whether or not a certain book reveals God's truth. A book that taught lying for the glory of God or prayer for the dead quick, was quickly rejected. It was not considered to be authentic, which much of the Apocrypha does. It was denied. They were also denied because they failed to agree with the remainder of Scripture. I'm thankful that you can pick up this book and find a running thread of agreement all the way through the scriptures. It is an amazing thing that you can take something that God would use over 40 different men over a period of 1,500 years and find it agreeing on every occasion and finding the prophecies. Matter of fact, if there is a, a phenomenal proof, a phenomenal proof of, of, ins, of inspiration, it is the reliability of the prophecy of God's word over and over and over and over again. And so they would ask that question, is it, is it authoritative? Is it prophetic? Is it authentic? Does it line up with the rest of Scripture? Is it dynamic? This question seeks to discover whether a book possesses the power of God. Is the book able to change lives? Psalms 119 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy what? Thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is the power in God's word? Is this book, does it possess the power of God? Is it changing somebody's life? Can you imagine being at the church at Corinth when the first letter arrived? The, the letter, the power of the letter of 1 Corinthians wasn't just that it, the language of it, but it was the language, it was the one who gave it. And a church that was changed, you ought to read 1 Corinthians versus 2 Corinthians and see the change that had been worked in Corinthians. What is one of the evidences of God's word? Is it, is, it, is it that way? Is it dynamic? Is it powerful? Was it received, used, and preserved by the people of God? Those early saints. Uh, matter of fact, in Peter, 2 Peter three fifteen through 16, it says this. And it, and account that the long suffering of our Lord, our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother, brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking to them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which, which they that are un, unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. You know, when, when Peter wrote, the church recognized it as the word of God, and they preserved it as the word of God. You can see, the, you can see the, the way the Lord confirmed it. You can see the way the early church recognized this. This is 
God's word. As the letters were received, they recognized certain one of them, ones of them. They, the, they were authentic. They were, uh, they were dynamic. Uh, they were uh, authoritative. They were prophetic. And, and uh, they were received and used and preserved by the early church. These early church folks saw the scripture and knew when it was scripture. They compared it and they saw it running through scripture. And, uh, and so we gained this, not only that it was determined by God, but it was recognized by the early church for being the word of God. Now you can pick up a lot of different books and you can find old books, but that doesn't mean they're God's word. And well, we live in a time when people are trying to dilute the word of God by trying to add some to it. A matter of fact, when it came down to the Apocrypha, you know, folks will mention that it was added in, in parts of the King James Bible. But do you know that so were genealogies a part of the King James Bible, some of those old letters? So were genealogies, so were hymnals. There was hymns written in those things. Because those books were not merely, if you would, just taking the Bible, but they were something they had. So they would have hymns in there. They would have genealogies written in there. They would have the Apocrypha because they were informative of the time, but not because they were inspired scripture. Can you imagine for a moment if someone to find your Bible 500 years from now and then turn to the commentary sections in your study Bible and say, that must be the inspired word of God. Now, it's informative, but it was never accepted as the word of God, even in its day. a matter of fact, uh, they never, uh, and when it comes to the Apocrypha, they never claimed inspiration for themselves. The people didn't accept it because the Apocrypha in the books that you will read there never claimed uh, inspiration for themselves. They were not authoritative. The writers of the Apocrypha never claimed them to be the word of God. They were never sanctioned by the early church leaders. As a matter of fact, it was 400 years later. It wasn't until 400 years later that they were even allowed to be printed in that book because they were not seen as scripture. Books of the Apocrypha not only contradict the Bible, but they also contradict them each other. The quality of the Apocrypha is far below that of the Bible, even to the point of occasionally teaching immorality. Suicide, assassination, praying for the dead and various things. The book of the Apocrypha were never received by the people of God. Never received. And so we see this, that we have the canon of Scripture. Same thing goes for the book of Enoch and some of those things. Someone asked me about that recently. But we have the canon of God's word. God has given, me, given us something in his scripture that he has determined that Jesus himself would go back and reference specifically those books and comment down. He would look ahead and say, this is the way that it's going to come and it's going to come through these. And then even the early church would say, this is what God has said. And this is the things that we have seen through God's word. This must be God's word. And you can pick it up, you can pick up the books of the New Testament and see it follow the theme of the Old Testament, the prophecies fulfilled. Settled on the interpretation of God's word. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10 says this, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Not only does God give us the canon of his scripture, but there's principles for interpreting. I am thankful that God has given me his word and also has given us the Holy Spirit of God to teach us his word. I'm thankful that I can pick up this book tomorrow morning. I can open up its pages and have the Holy Spirit of God speak to my heart from the word of God. 
I've watched a History Channel thing or two or here or there as folks maybe try to, through a historical perspective, try to comment on the Bible. And you can see they don't know Christ. Because as they're reading the scripture, you can tell they don't even know what they're talking about when it comes to the word of God. And they're missing a key agent. That agent is the Holy Spirit of God that teaches us from his word. And as that Holy Spirit of God moves in, he follows certain principles. And and I'm just going to give you these things quickly because I think they help a Christian avoid, help a Christian avoid doctrinal error. Uh, You know, how, how is it that in the time of Christ... You could go and there was, it was the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Colossae, and, and everybody knew what they were talking about it. And yet today, you could go around Columbus, Georgia, you could see the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, the Methodist church, the Baptist church. And what has happened? It's the approach that you take to the scripture. It's the approach that they take to scripture. And here it is, as the Holy Spirit leads the, the principles we take. First of all, there's a literal principle when it comes to the word of God. The literal, literal principle teaches that the words of Scripture should be interpreted in a normal, natural, proper way. We realize that any good literature makes abundant use of similes, metaphors, and other figures of speech, but we should never interpret the Bible figuratively unless the Bible clearly intakes the use of a non-literal language. We take this, if the plain sense makes common sense, make no other sense, right? If the plain sense makes common sense, make no other sense out of it. In other words, you can pick up the scripture and you can see where God is given an, it, giving some type of allegory or, 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 uh, or he's given that parable. But unless God is, and, and that's taking the scriptures literally because you see the literal sense is that God is giving a parable. We take the scripture literally, the way he speaks what happened, that is what we take. People get themselves in trouble when they try to read into the word of God. How many of you appreciate it when someone assumes your motives? How many of you, how many of you appreciate that? I mean, you say one thing, but, but they're making assumptions on what you really mean, right? It's horrible, right? They're usually, you know, people usually assume, assume to the negative, don't they? Matter of fact, if you ran in here late tonight, probably nobody said, I bet you they're winning someone to Christ outside in the street, right? They probably said, boy, that person didn't get away from the dinner table soon enough, right? We assume to the negative, don't we? That's, that's human nature is that we assume to the negative. And nobody cares for it when someone assumes about them. And we shouldn't assume about God and his word. When with the plain sense makes common sense, make no other sense out of the scripture. I, I've talked with folks that read into the word of God and I say, uh, hold up, man, that, that's not there. Well, well, you know, I just think, no, no, no. What does he say? Uh, he had something to say. We must take what he has said. The historical principle. We must be careful to view a passage in its original cultural and historical setting. The more we understand the times of the Bible characters, the better we will be able to rightly divide the word of God. I think a great illustration of this is the bride of Christ. There's three different ways the Lord refers to the church, doesn't he? The building of God. Uh, He talks about it as the body of Christ. And he talks about it as the bride of Christ. Talk about a teaching right there. When you grab the, the cultural standpoint, we see this in the life of Mary, that Joseph and Mary were betrothed. Husband that time would be betrothed to a wife. And then he would go out and get his place ready. And he would go prepare a place and prepare a home and get it all set and all ready. And then upon that, when it was all ready, he would come back for his bride. And they would come back to live in his house. There's incredible truth to that. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ. What did God do? He came the first time, didn't he? And he died on the old rug cross. And he rose again three days later that we might be saved, that we might be called the bride of Christ. And he has gone up into glory, hasn't he? 
He has ascended up in glory. And what is he doing? He's gone, according to John chapter 14, to prepare a place for us there. And when it's ready, what is he doing? He's coming back again to call his bride home to be with him. And that, that, that understanding of the cultural historical standpoint of the bride and the groom gives us an incredible understanding as to what God is doing in our life today. And why he tarries and where he's gone. And, and when you take the scripture, learn the cultural context and the historical part of it. As you learn it, it broadens your understanding of the word of God. The contextual principle. A passage can be correctly interpreted by the correct understanding of the context in which it is found. In other words, read the verses and chapter around it. Amen. You know, it has, there's a point to the conversation that's around it. And no, no one verse, I, I, I enjoy, and you know, there's, there's debates today about expository preaching and topical preaching. And I think there's a place for both. I do think topical should have some expository. But, but I've seen guys get into going so verse by verse that they're in the second chapter of the verse and they're middle of a verse and all of a sudden they're forgetting what was said in the first. And so they're taking that second, that verse that was weeks removed from their first message completely out of context. Because they have forgotten the remainder of the book. The book needs context. The verses need context. Read around it. Read before it. I love the verses in Philippians. I think it's a tremendous illustration of it. In Philippians 2.12 it says, Wherefore my beloved as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then the next verse says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I remember I was having lunch with someone one day, and they say, You've got to work out your own salvation. You've got, to have, you've got to work toward salvation. First of all, that's not what's in the scripture, is it? It says, Work out thine salvation. In other words, there was something already there in the first place, right? There was something on the inside that's got to make its way to the outside. But even the next verse tells us, now the context of that is, in other words, that what God has done on the inside should be manifesting itself on the outside, shouldn't it? There should be fruit. Faith produces fruit, doesn't it? That's the context. But if you read the next scripture, you even see that it's not me that's supposed to make what's on the inside pop out to the outside, is it? Because if you read, verse, read the next verse in verse 12, it says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Who is it that's doing the work? God is doing the work. And the context of taking those scriptures together give us a greater understanding of what he's saying in the one. And you know, so many people take one scripture and just build their whole life on one little scripture. And it's a mistake. It's an error. We ought to take the scripture in its context. The grammatical principle, I won't linger here long, but the grammar that, that is used in, in 1 John 5, 18, it says, we know, that whatsoever is, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. It sounds almost like someone who's saved doesn't sin, but that's not the grammar of it. That, 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 uh, that is a present tense. It, it means this, that they don't abide in sin. They don't continue in sin. Friend, if you know Christ as your Savior, God's going to chasten you when you sin, isn't he? He won't allow you to stay in it. Uh, a synthetical principle, we must always interpret a verse of Scripture in the light of other passages of Scripture. In other words, we should not take an obscure part of Scripture and build our doctrine on it. We ought to pray, compare Scripture with Scripture. We ought to compare Scripture with Scripture. Uh, matter of fact, many people get the doctrine of, of sal- baptism as a part of salvation because they are comparing one verse rather than Scripture with Scripture. Matter of fact, if you read the book of Acts, which is a book of, of what? It's a book of history. 
It's a history book, am I right? It's the Acts of the Apostles. And matter of fact, that book just doesn't really come to an end. It just almost like it drops, it just continues. We just don't have the next chapter because we're a little still living in that book, all right? But, but the reality is that uh, they'll, they'll go to there for, for story bap- verses on baptism for salvation when in reality it's a history book of how the church went. They, were, they believed and they were baptized. But baptism wasn't a part of their salvation. It was a product. Where if you go to verses on salvation, what does the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, but the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. People try to build a doctrine off of an obscure or simple verse without comparing it to the remainder of Scripture. And so we get, have great doctrinal error in our day. To take it in its synthetical principle, the practical principle, what is the Bible what does the passage mean to me today? With this, settle on the study of your word of God. Would you go to Romans chapter 6? And I hope this is uh, maybe where it gets a little bit more down to earth for us today rather than just maybe an academic. I, I feel like we need this. I, you know, I have a burden. I, how many of you have known somebody, they grew up, you know, they've, they've been in church and then they left church? You ever know somebody? I think of how John would warn that. I think sometimes it's a term, determined of salvation. I, I've watched people go. Matter of fact, when I was in D.C. this week, I heard a guy speak. And uh, they asked this guy. He worked for the Heritage Foundation. And he was one of the doctors. He was writing. He was, he was speaking on different subjects. And one of them asked him, well, what do you think about Romans chapter 1 in compared to our culture? And I was ready for the guy to just go, oh, you know, you know. But he goes, you know, I like theological questions. He goes, because I was a Protestant. He goes, now I'm a Catholic. And I thought, how do you go from being a Protestant to a Catholic, right? I get the reverse, but now I'm Baptist. All right, okay, and we'll, we won't argue that, debate that tonight. But, but how do you make that decision? How do, you, how do you do that? How do you go from the priesthood of the believer to going and confessing your sins before some man? How, how do you go, go through what Christ did for us at Calvary and that he did it all and he's, there's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus, and, and then somehow come to this place where the, there's this, this atonement that somehow Mary provides. And how do you cheapen the name? I, I don't really know that, but I think some of it has got to come down to sometimes a misunderstanding of doctrine. It is my heart that when someone, if someone were to ever leave grace it wouldn't, and go to something completely foreign to that, it wouldn't be because they didn't know the doctrine, but it's because they reject the doctrine. And that ought to be the call of a, of a Christian. And I think of our Sunday school teachers, our master club workers, our youth ministry, is that you know the truths of God's word. That we know it. And that's why I think canon of scripture is important. I, I think that's why learning them, sometimes it may seem academic, but, but my prayer is that when my son Samuel comes that age, that he knows what the scriptures say that he knows what the scripture says and and now we see it from a practical standpoint i want you to look at hebrew romans chapter six and in in verse one of chapter six it says what shall we say then shall we be continue in sin that grace may abound god forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into jesus christ were baptized into his death Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. We practice this in our baptism. We say that phrase, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in what? 
newness of life. Our life has been changed. Am I right? It's been changed. Well, how does God, how does God change a Christian's life? And I think some of those things are here when it comes to salvation of both the Christian life. One of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, the Lord said, But we all with open face, beholdings in the glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What does he say? With an open face. What is that? It's a willing heart. But we all with open face, beholding his glass. What is the glass? Well, James refers to it as the perfect law of liberty. And he tells us, look into it with a mirror. And what do we see in there? First of all, we see, but we all with open face, beholding his glass, the glory of the Lord. We see who God is. Every page of scripture is first and foremost a picture of our Lord. It tells us who he is, of what he's done for us, of his love for us. Our change into the same image, in other words, we become more like him. But we all with open face, beholding in glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the what? The Spirit of the Lord. Who does the changing? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God in our life. This chapter is spelling out, if you will, some of those changes that God does in our life. And I want to take those changes and how God makes a change in this passage of Scripture and apply it to the Scripture tonight in our study of the Word of God. I want you to notice a few key verses. Look at verse 3. What are the first uh, two words of verse three, know ye. What are the, what is the two first two words of verse six? Knowing this, the first three words of, of, of verse nine, knowing that Christ. Know ye not, verse three, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death, what he did for us and what he's done in us. Verse six, knowing this, that our old man has crucified him, that's old sinful nature, and the blood of the sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Verse nine, knowing that, knowing that Christ was raised from the dead, uh, dieth no more, death hath no, no more dominion over him. The first key to God changing, doing a changing work in our life is to know. And I think when it comes to the study of the scripture, know the word. Know the word. If the word of God will change you, if who God is and what God has for you will change you, then you must know it. You must know it. And we should make a lifelong pursuit of knowing it. Jeremiah uh, 15, 16 says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Job 23, 12. Neither have I gone back to the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. There is the call of Scripture, that we know it. And I would say this, read it daily that you might know it. What is the teaching of his word? He counted it more than his necessary food. How many of you have eaten today? We've eaten, right? Unless you're on a fast, all right? But you've eaten. As a general rule, we eat at least once a day. Maybe twice, maybe three times, right? Maybe four times if you really want to. All right, I don't know. But we eat. Know your Bible. And the writer's saying this, I counted it more than my necessary food. The Lord Jesus Christ would use that illustration. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Absorb the scripture into your life. Know it. You cannot follow a God that you do not know. And you cannot know God without knowing his word. You can know that there is a God without knowing his word, but you cannot know him without knowing his word. You cannot. There is a general revelation of God in nature, but the specific revelation of God is in his word. Know his word. 
God does a changing work when we know him. Read his word. Study his word. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, or in other words, acceptable. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those at Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Meditate upon the word. Joshua 1, 8, the verse we all know. But this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Psalms 119, verse 23. Princes also did sit and speak against me, but but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. Psalms 119, verse 48, My hands also will I lift up unto thy commandments, which I have loved, and I will meditate in thy statutes. I could go on and on and on against what the Bible says about meditation. But what is he saying? Know my word. Know my word. What is he saying here in in Romans chapter 6 when it comes to God changing our life? We must know what he has done for us and know what he has done in our life. Know God's word. If you will know God, you will learn to know his word. Know his words. Read it. Study it. Claim it. Claim it. Look at verse chapter in this chapter six again and look at what it says in verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is he saying? He's saying reckon. As he's talking about what Christ has done for us, the first thing he says is know what God has done for you. But knowing is insufficient, isn't it? You also have to claim it. The word to reckon means to account to your life, to claim it to you who you are. In other words, You can know who God is. You can know that Jesus was God, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, and he did it all for you and still reject it. Right? You can reject it. You can refuse it. You cannot claim it. I could buy you a gift that you desperately needed, wrap it up, put your name on it, and put it on your kitchen table. And you could know it's bought. You could know it's paid for. You could know it's something you needed, but it would do you absolutely no good until you did what? You accepted it. What is God saying in his word? He said, not only that we know it, but that we claim it. That we apply it to our life. 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. It applies for me. It's good for me. But I must claim it and apply it. He's talking about that in this passage of scripture. He said, know what God has done for you. Know what it's done in your life. But don't just know it, but reckon it uh, according to who you are. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ, your Lord. You are going to have to apply it. In other words, you're going to have to accept it and apply it to your life. I must know God's word and I must claim God's word. We quote the verse often, Je- Jeremiah 33, 3, uh, call upon the Lord and he will answer thee and show thee what? Great and mighty things which shall show us not. You can believe that verse and still not pray. You can know it and not claim it. Right? You, you, can, you can know, but let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need and still not come boldly before the throne of grace. You can have it ingrained in your head, written on a doctrinal statement, and still not claim it. 
What is he saying when it comes to spiritual victory in this passage of Scripture? He's saying, number one, know it. Number two, claim it. And I, I'll tell you this. When it comes to the Word of God, if you will study it, you're going to have to know it. You're going to absorb yourself into it through the reading of it, through the studying of it, through the meditating upon it. But it doesn't end there. You have to apply it. You have to claim it. Before I left Indianapolis, there was a fellow there that uh, was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. And matter of fact, by the time I left, he was living under an overpass there around 465 that went around Indianapolis. But the guy could quote scripture to you. He'd quote it to you. He knew it, but he didn't claim it. He knew it, but he didn't claim it. You know what the, the sad thing about the scripture being so common in our life, and by common, I don't mean it's a common thing, but it's readily available, is this, is that it's so familiar to us that we don't claim it. That we know it, but we do not live it. And he said, know it, claim it, and then yield to it. Look at what he says here in verse 12 and 13. He would say here when it comes to the work of God, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it unto the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness and to sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those things that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. That first word of verse 12, let, and the first two words of verse 13, neither yield, and then the middle of it, but yield yourselves to the God. It is not only knowing it, claiming it, but yielding to its work in our life. James 1, through 25 says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he shall be, be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This man shall be blessed in his deed. What is the difference? We yield to it. I was speaking for our men's salt conference. I asked one of the fellows to speak, and I asked him to speak on this subject. Would you speak, speak on building biblical convictions in your life? And I'm not asking you to give hand out a biblical conviction. I'm asking you to teach on how to develop a biblical conviction. Because here it is. I, you know, this book is a timeless book, isn't it? It's a timeless book from a timeless God. And my job is to take that scripture and apply it to my life today or let the Holy Spirit apply it to my life. This is what the scripture says. This is how it applies to my life. And I'm going to yield to it and follow it and obey it. And what we do so many times is either some folks have convictions because they were given to them, right? Well, here, this is your conviction. You live it. But they've never looked at to it themselves, never looked at the scripture themselves. Other people have none, right? The Bible is like a book of information to them, and so they've developed none. But what we ought to be doing is this is what the Bible says. I know what it says. I'm going to claim it and apply it to my life, and this is what it means, to, what it means for me, practically speaking. And now I'm going to yield to it and let God work in my life. Scripture. Scripture. He's talking about here about a man changed in Romans chapter 6. A man changed by God and what he had done in his life, that he had died for them. They were dead and their sins were, were the old man was crucified. And, and I will tell you this, that's the way of Christian living. Know God's word. Claim God's word. Yield to God's word. What I ought to be doing is taking this, being settled on this fact, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. This is the inspired word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, it is the inspired word of God. It is reliable and I can have it. And I need to interpret it correctly and let the Holy Spirit of God work in my life. But practically speaking, if you're not in it, 
it will do you no good. If you're not claiming it, it will do you no good. And certainly, if you're not yielding to it, it will do you no good. The call is that we would know God's word, we would claim God's word, and we would yield to God's word. Knowing it is insufficient. Again, I'll say this, one of my, one of my prayers for my children, I, I said this earlier about doctrine, I want them to know the scripture, know the doctrine, but I don't want it to end there. It is easy to walk away from a creed, but it's hard to walk away from a relationship, isn't it? And it's hard. It's easy, it's easy for someone to get up and say, well, you know, I just don't believe that way, and walk away from it. But a relationship. It's one of the things that's hard when someone makes that transition in their life, isn't it, as a Christian? Someone you walked closely with, someone you served with, someone you were friends with, and they make a doctrinal shift. I just don't believe it anymore, and I'm going. What's so hard about it, not only is the doctrine, but it's the broken relation. It's the relationship that becomes frayed, right? Because it's easy for someone to step away from something on paper, but it is hard to step away from a relationship. I want my children, I want my children to not only know the scripture, but I have a relationship with God. And I think if they know the scripture and have a relationship with God, that it'll be hard for them to ever walk away from it. So I, you can talk about the canon of scripture, the interpretation of the scripture, but I tell you where relationship comes in, knowing it, reading it, studying it, meditating upon it, claiming it. This verse means this to me. And now, Lord, I'm yielding to your work. Strengthen me and enable me to live that verse. And God changes our life. But we all, with open face, beholding in glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If it's just a book on yourself, I don't care how good you think it is, it won't do much for you. But when it becomes personal, it changes a person's life. It changes our life. That book is reliable. It's given by the inspiration of God. The Lord Jesus Christ confirmed the Old Testament when he spoke of it himself in his earthly life. He pre-authenticated the New Testament so that I could grab a hold of it. The early church fathers knew it when they saw it, that it was the word of God. And it has been preserved by God to us today that I can pick it up and say, I know I have the word of God. And he's given me the Holy Spirit of God to interpret the scripture and, and teach me the scripture. But I'm going to have to take it and say, I'm going to decide to know it in my life. Read it, study it, meditate on it. And then I'm going to have to claim it. I'm going to have to claim it and apply it to my life. And I'm going to have to yield to it. Say, okay, Lord, that's what you said. You ever read something in the scripture you don't particularly care for? In other words, because it called you to step of change in your life. There's times you read the scripture and you're like, oh, that's going to require something different of me. And you have a choice. Yield to it. Or reject it. And in the moment, the decision you make will be either the power of God to change you or wrestling with God and rejecting it. It is in the yielding to it that God changes our life with his word. Let's pray together. Heads bowed. Lord, I love you and I thank you so much for your goodness to us. And I'm thankful for the scripture that we hold in our hand tonight. And I know tonight is a very different message, but Lord, I pray that we would be better equipped and a better understanding of your word. And Lord, I pray most of all, above everything else in the scripture, that we would make a decision to know your word, to claim your word, Lord, and to yield to your word. 
as surely as you changed our life by what we know about God and what you did for us at Calvary and the claiming of that in that you did it for us and we apply it personally and yield to what you've done. I pray that we would treat the scriptures in the same manner, that we would know it, we would search it, we would read it, we would study it, we would meditate upon it. Lord, we would claim it and apply it to our life and certainly we would yield to what you have for us. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me just ask you tonight, how many of you could say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. That's a settled thing for me. That's your testimony. It's, it's Wednesday night. I know I didn't deal much with that. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Is there anybody who say, Preacher, I'm unsure about my salvation, but I'm here and I need to know the Lord. If, if that's your testimony, would you raise your hand just between you and I? Let me ask you this, Christian. I, I know for the most part, different message, but maybe some of it you're very familiar with already, but you'd say, hey, Preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart. Maybe it's a reminder of his word, the need to be in it, to meditate on it, to study it. But you say, a preacher of the Lord has spoken to my heart this evening. Would you stand with me? And as that pianist begins to play, as God has spoken to your heart, the altar is open, the invitation is given. But as God has spoken to your heart, do business with the Lord.